Welcome to the Spit It Out podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Avi Robbins. We're bringing you engaging discussions with thought leaders from academia and industry as we explore everything from what's in your saliva to why it's a good indicator of your overall health. Join us as we raise awareness around what saliva can tell us, why it's important for the future of healthcare, and what some really awesome people are doing about it today. Today, I'm happy to have Sarah Nickel joining me on the podcast. I first met Sarah back in July at Saliva Direct's annual conference in Chicago. It was awesome to hear her story, and I'm excited to share that with our listeners. Sarah has her Bachelor of Science degree in Clinical Laboratory Science and Medical Technology from Wichita State University, and her Master's of Science degree in Microbiology and Cell Science from the University of Florida. Sarah has many years of hands-on clinical laboratory experience and has most recently been an assistant professor at Wichita State and has become the director of their Molecular Diagnostics Laboratory, which she started up during COVID. Please join me in welcoming Sarah Nickel to our podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, I really loved catching up with you um, back in Chicago at this Live Direct conference, and I you know, thought maybe we could just start out by giving an introduction to our listeners on, on what brought you here, you know, your education, and really your passion for what we're talking about today, because I think that's what was really exciting to me, is you could just tell how exciting a topic this was for you. Yeah, I'm a really passionate person when it comes to clinical microbiology. And it's kind of funny because when I graduated with my bachelor's degree, I didn't really like micro. I wanted to work in the blood bank and make a difference. And then I was going to go to med school and do all these things. But as anyone listening might know, if you work in a clinical micro lab, you kind of quickly grow to love everything about it, including identifying complex organisms in the case of, you know, SARS-CoV-2. So I worked in a clinical laboratory in the same city I graduated from for about 10 years. And During that time, I got to see so many cool things because all the technology was very rapidly changing when I graduated in 2006 to the time that I went back to school. We did PCR by electrophoresis. (laughs) There was no respiratory virus PCR test. All these put it on and get an answer off that did not exist back in the day. And so it was really wonderful to have so many amazing people that I got to work with that nurtured me and taught me so many things I didn't learn in school. And so after that like 10 year time period, I started having that nudge that I wanted to go back to school so I could try to go teach the future of the lab. The students that were coming in, I felt like there were things, right, that I could tell them differently and maybe try to get them to a point where they were more prepared up into that laboratory. So I did. I went back to school and I became an assistant professor at Wichita State. And I was teaching clinical microbiology and molecular diagnostics along with immunology. And I loved it. I loved teaching very much. I never thought I'd do anything else. I was just going to be a teacher. (laughs) Fast forward, of course, all of us, our lives changed greatly when the pandemic hit. Who could predict (laughs) Who cannot remember that? Right. So, of course, at that time, everybody was struggling to get a test. And it was kind of this thing of, you know, Sarah, you have the right background to do PCR testing. Why aren't we doing it differently? And so I got this opportunity to switch and become the COVID lady. (laughs) How did that come about? Did Wichita State have a micro molecular diagnostics laboratory or what was really the need in the community that came to Wichita State? So at Wichita State, we're kind of a different university. We're really into innovation and solving community needs. 
Okay. So in our community, we're very heavy on aerospace. We do a lot of manufacturing of airplanes. And the thing about manufacturing airplanes is you cannot do it from Zoom. You have to do it in person. And so there was this need on our aerospace side that actually drove the innovation team at Wichita State to say, why don't we have a lab? If we need test results, we do all these things, high precision, you know, high volume things. Why can't we do it in this world too? And so that's the group that actually came to me at the university. It was the aerospace side of our university that came to me and said that they needed to stand up a COVID lab. Did I know how to do PCR testing? We met together and we discussed, yes, I knew how to do PCR testing, but starting a lab in the middle of a pandemic when no one can get supplies and all of these things, we were going to have to really think about how we approached it. Yeah, how to really fight through some of those challenges, right, in, in terms of throughput and, and getting, you know, you talked about sort of the evolution of clinical, you know, laboratory, right, this need for instant gratification, right? I think that was one of the key parts about the beginning of the pandemic was taking a week for people to get test results, right? Exactly. And it was like, how are we going to do that? in a different way where we don't put more stress on the healthcare system and where we can teach while we're doing it. Because at the end of the day, I'm a teacher. And so that's the big goal, right? We took all of that and we came up with the concept of how we were going to beat all of these hurdles. And we knew that it meant we had to be able to do high volume testing, which meant the one and dones are gone. We can't put it on an instrument, one cartridge at a time, that you're never going to reach high volumes that way. So we needed to go kind of back to the older school molecular testing or what a lot of research labs use. Honestly, a lot of high throughput labs and a lot of research labs use larger instrumentation where you can do more than one sample at a time. So we knew we needed to do that. We knew that we needed to use a sample type that didn't have to rely on a swab because swabs were hard to get and you need a nurse to collect it. So we were led to saliva testing as kind of our vision. We needed to do saliva and we needed to be able to do high volumes of it with old school. We're going to extract it. Then we're going to amplify it. We're not doing it all one. (laughs) We got really, really fortunate because during all of that time, we had this great idea, but with a great idea, you still got to be able to follow through it. Right, figure it out. Got to be able to figure out how to do it. And one of our biggest issues was the need for a test because you had to have an EUA. You couldn't just do a lab developed test, which we were capable of doing that. But having the EUA, we're trying to stand up a brand new lab. There's no way we're going to figure out the whole FDA side of this. So obviously, we met at Saliva Direct Conference because Saliva Direct was one of the best things that ever happened to me personally and our laboratory during the whole pandemic process of standing up a lab because they had a saliva test and it had an EUA and all I had to do was prove I could get the right result. Yeah, that's perfect. And so how did you come across Saliva Direct before? I mean, you mentioned you were trying your own LDT and came to realize that the EUA was going to be required. Or I know the regulations were changing, you know, Very quite a rapidly. bit at pace then that it was really hard for us to even kind of figure out what do we need to go do in that time period? Yeah, no, you're so right. So we had partnered with a couple of research laboratories and they were trying to help us be able to use what they were going to go after for their own EUA. And it was really just a big struggle because we didn't really understand those regulations either, right? So the way we heard about Saliva Direct actually was through a news article about the NBA using it. And they were going to be going after an EUA that anybody would be able to use their tests. And it was this lab developed method. And really, it just answered everything for us. And it was actually found by the same person, the same leader of our whole aviation side of the university. He's the one that sent the article to me, Dr. John Tomlin, and said, Sarah, I've heard you saying all these things. Is this what you're looking for? And I was like, 
oh my gosh, yes. Like that's exactly what I need. It was already multiplexed. It was already like ready to go. And it was like, all I have to do is prove I can do it. That we can do. We're good. Then we were sailing. We had all of our stuff figured out and now we had a test and all we had to do was validate it. Yeah. That's awesome. For all the reasons you mentioned, Slive is a great sample. It's easy to collect. You collect it from all different types of individuals. Just need a tube to collect it, right? There's other more advanced ways to collect it for sure, right? I know that you and I are talking about some studies that we can do to help make it easy for any kind of population to collect. You know, nasal pharyngeal swabs were the gold standard, right? I think that, you know, when you and I were catching up, you had a great perspective on how that came to be, right? Why is this yeah. nasal pharyngeal swab the gold standard? And why is there some hesitance in saliva? Maybe you could share with us you know, a little bit of your background there. Yeah, I would love to share that actually. So one of the greatest things about graduating when I did and working so many years in the clinical lab was I saw this transition. So when I first started in the clinical laboratory, like I mentioned, we didn't have respiratory PCR. We did not do PCR. And that's really hard for people to like envision because <laughs> what do you mean you didn't do PCR? We did it for Bordetella pertussis because that was like this one organism that took forever to grow and it was actually bacteria. And so yes, we did it for that, but it was brand new technology. Nobody was really using it in the clinical lab. And so I got to experience viral culturing. So when I first started in the laboratory, we actually were using not even nasopharyngeal swabs. They were nasopharyngeal aspirates. And what would happen is you would take like, it's basically a feeding tube and stick it way down into the nasopharynx and use a syringe on the other end and actually try to suck some of those cells. Sounds comfortable. The reason being, a lot of people don't know this. The reason we needed that is because we needed the actual cells that were back in the nasopharynx because the only option we had was to do a culture or we could also do a stain. So we did fluorescent antibody stains off of these direct suctions from the nasopharynx. When you had that, what happened was you took the sample, you spun it down, you concentrated the cells on a slide. And the reason you needed the cells is because viruses are intracellular. So we would put different fluorescent antibody stains onto these cells and we would actually look for the viruses. You couldn't always detect them. It was not nearly as sensitive, but it was at least a way if you had someone who had a very high viral load, you could give them an answer that day because the viral culture was going to take at least five. Like very, very rare that you're going to have a respiratory virus grow in less than three days. And usually you're looking more at the five day range. So that was kind of how nasopharyngeal came to be because we needed the cells. Eventually someone came up with the flock swab. And when that happened, then it switched over. We no longer needed the aspirate. That wasn't the gold standard. We could have a flock swab because it collected a lot of the cells. Okay. But as we transitioned to the world of PCR, we never transitioned our sample type because it was already the gold standard. We had already established it. One of my favorite things that has come out of COVID is the opportunity to look at saliva as a gold standard sample type. We're currently working on several projects. I know you and I together even on, on a project sure. where we're trying to evaluate What's the difference between the nasopharyngeal swab and the saliva when we're specifically trying to do PCR testing? The viral load has been very consistently detectable in saliva for COVID. And so it's really interesting to start applying that to other respiratory viruses. And we might be sitting at a place where we can change what that gold standard is if we can prove that actually it's just as good a sample type and we don't need those cells because no one at least that I know of, I should put it there, <laughs> is still doing viral cultures for respiratory viruses. Right. Certainly seem to be a waste of the current capabilities that exist. Absolutely. And when we talk about turnaround time and like taking a week, five <laughs> days to get a result in those days, like it did, like we kind of got spoiled right. as time went by with PCR and we should take advantage of that technology and really question and challenge ourselves, right? To find a better way. 
Yeah, for sure. And I think you're right, you know, because of people like you, it's going to take the science, <laughs> right, to produce these bodies of evidence yeah. that will demonstrate to people that they should take saliva seriously, and that it can be just as accurate, if not more accurate and more predictable, as a lot of studies have shown, right, you can detect um, SARS-CoV-2 earlier in saliva than perhaps with nasal swab. So I look forward to the studies that you're talking about and those of your colleagues across the world that are, I think, really participating in this effort to demonstrate that. I understood that you're now starting up a microbiology laboratory at Wichita State. So maybe before we go there, like what is the future of COVID testing and, and your molecular diagnostics laboratory look like at Wichita? And then you know, tell us a little bit about the future from there. Yeah. So it's been a crazy journey, right? At, at the height of everything, we were running about 5,000 PCRs a day. And now currently we're running about 150. What's been really interesting is you know, last year we kind of predicted that there might be this surge of influenza with RSV, with COVID right. all at the same time, and it, it didn't really happen, but we're seeing it this year. So our COVID testing is still very low. We're only doing about 150 a day right now for the community, but we're really fortunate in our state. Yeah. Kansas, the legislature really stood up and said, you know, there's still COVID funding available and it's still okay to spend it on testing. So they've actually extended, they're supplying the funding through CARES dollars so that we can continue to test the public for free. Nobody has to pay for a test, which is wonderful. Is and great. at the Wichita State Lab, we're offering a an LDT now for influenza RSV COVID. And we have I've seen a shift in people are suffering through the nasopharyngeal swab for us so that they can find out if they have those three organisms, not just COVID, because symptoms can be pretty similar. And as our influenza rate goes up, it can be hard to know which one you have. So it's been an interesting switch and we're so excited and ready to be able to say we can do that on saliva. <laughs> we're eager there, but yeah, so our COVID testing will continue as the need is there. Something else for us that we really want is we feel like we've really found a great pandemic model. By utilizing our community, we actually onboarded about 600 different partners that would help collect saliva on their own employees, close neighbors, whatever it was, the organization would open up to being able to help us collect saliva. And we really think that was a great model that we executed. So we're going to hang on to that model. Should there ever be a need in the future, the plan will be to stand up that same exact model. But for right now, awesome. we're going to go after standing up a full clinical microbiology lab, which is a little bit intimidating in a lot of ways because it's a lot more than doing one test. But as I kind of mentioned in the beginning, I left the clinical bench to become a teacher. And part of teaching is you need work. You need real things. And I've been watching our clinical sites. So what happens in medical laboratory sciences is we teach them everything we can. And then we send them to clinicals for six months and we're like, okay, teach them the rest. There's sure. less and less sites. There's a need for techs everywhere and there's not enough support and less and less labs are doing microbiology because it is high complexity and it takes a little bit more specialized knowledge to be able to execute. So we are standing up a full clinical micro lab and hopes to continue to serve our community. We have tons of tiny little hospitals in Kansas, which is a little bit different than most. Every single county in Kansas has a hospital because we're kind of spread out. And so our hope is to be able to provide those smaller hospitals the same kind of quality you would if you were going to a large hospital that might have a microbiology laboratory. Awesome. And so how would that work? They would be the collection site and I guess courier samples to your lab. And then your, your students would have the opportunity to really get that real world experience learning how to perform these assays right in the laboratory. Exactly. Right alongside people. So at most hospital laboratories, you're trying to just get your work done. But here we'll be able to intentionally like 
put teachers in the lab, if you will. So they're working mm-hmm. right alongside them and allowing them to learn, but in a real environment with real work. So it'll be safe for all the patients. It'll be teaching at the same time. And hopefully we can continue to supply workforce to fill that gap that we're seeing. Yeah, I really think it's a great mission, right? To service the community, but also at the same time, use that to train you know, the next generation of technologists and, you know, leaders there. It's really incredible that you're putting in that effort, right, to really make that change at Wichita State and in order to serve that community. So we're pretty excited about it. Yeah, it's crazy because when I started at the university, you know, we were kind of like, why don't we have a lab? Like, it'd be so much easier to teach our (laughs) students. But the reason is because it's a lot of work. Like, it's definitely a lot of work. But Oh, man, we're really hopeful on the other end of it. Just like with COVID, you know, when they first came to me to start this lab, I was like, there's no way we can do that. Even I was like, I mean, I know how to do a test. There's no way. But being on the other side of it and seeing that, no, you really can. You can take a concept, you can take a need, and you can look at it from a different perspective and create a solution. So we're excited to try. What are the first steps for you there? You got to just get the equipment, find some people. Yeah. So luckily, my staff are all people I taught. And most of them have worked at least a little bit in clinical microbiology. And if not, I'm a teacher. So we're good there. We have ordered and was just delivered our equipment that we need to be able to do this. So next steps are going to be validation, training, standing up the whole LIS side, because there's a lot of test building that's going to have to happen. And yeah, setting up processes. Like you mentioned, how do we help these hospitals? The whole idea is to enhance the turnaround time, to take as long, micro so slow. So try to beat some of those processes that are maybe already in place and how do we do it different and better? So coming soon, spring 2023? That's the goal. All right. We're targeting, we're trying to hit May. That's what we're aiming for. And it's a loose target. (laughs) I want to be up and going before respiratory season next year. That's the goal. That's a great, that'll provide a great service for sure. Yeah, we hope so. (laughs) How about some of the other studies that you mentioned that you're thinking about? I know we're collaborating on an accessibility study. Why is that important to you or, you know, some other work that you're doing or some of your the collaborators that you're working with are doing. Yeah. So one of the great things about having our own laboratory and surviving through this pandemic process and watching how everything went. So when we first started as a lab, we weren't collecting. We stood up only to process that we had no intention of ever collecting samples here. We are not in a location meant for really collecting samples. But as the pandemic went on, we realized that there was a need to help with that too. The collection was still overwhelming healthcare providers. And so we knew that we could do it in a way that would alleviate some of that stress. So we stood up this whole collection side of our laboratory. And what it made me realize was even though saliva is this amazing, easy to give sample type, not every single person can actually give you a saliva sample by holding a tube to their mouth and spitting into that tube. We have several populations that I would watch come into the lab. And just, I'm a big empath. I care a lot about people. Like I just really do. And watching this young child or this elderly individual or someone who might have some some special needs and need a little bit extra assistance in life, watching them have to get a nasopharyngeal swab, even though we had a test that they could not have to do that because they couldn't spit in a tube. And so gotcha. we kind of went on our own journey of trying to figure out how to collect that saliva from them to alleviate that need. And so that's become a huge passion of mine is to be able to provide a sample type that's not stressful. Because what we would notice is if those individuals had to come back again, they were screaming 
before we even got near them with the swab. And it, it really broke my heart. I'm a mom and it made me really sad. So part of our partnership with you guys is looking at this other device where we can actually collect that saliva. We're working with other groups as well, just to look at saliva in general for possibly other things. Because we feel like when you go to the doctor, if someone tells you that they're going to stick a needle in your arm, you're probably less yeah. likely to go get that test. So the more things that we can test on someone by simply taking a saliva sample, we want to be a lab that drives that forward because everyone needs diagnostic testing and not getting it because you're scared of a blood draw. Like we've got to find a better way that people don't have to have that. I wholeheartedly agree with you there. I was reading the other day, there's a statistic out there, something like 40 million adults in the US, you know, don't seek medical treatment because they're afraid of needles. And I mean, you can just imagine the detrimental outcomes that are a result of that. So that's what makes us so passionate about saliva and alternate samples, or at least non-invasive samples. And yes. there's certainly a lot of ways to do it. But I think it's fantastic the effort you're taking to make that possible and to continue to do the research, right? To make sure that more people can see it and this body of evidence that we've been talking about can exist. Yeah, we're really excited about it. Another thing we're really passionate about is just the whole microbiome in general. So as a okay. society, we're seeing more and more autoimmune disease. And so another area of our interest in research is just, is there anything we could do looking in saliva again to help monitor the overall health of someone based maybe on their microbial population? So we we're in a world of antibiotic use, <laughs> antibiotic resistance. And of course, being sure. clinical micro, that's a whole nother side of my life, right? But yeah, trying to figure out how we might also be able to find things again in a source that's not invasive to help people be healthy. The whole area of scientific wellness, I think, is really booming. And you see a lot of stuff coming out on the microbiome. So I'll be interested to touch back with you and really see how that's progressing. Yeah, we're hoping it'll be really interesting. I guess there's one more area too, mental health. Yeah, awesome. We can't not talk about mental health. I personally haven't seen many people around me during this pandemic whose mental health has declined greatly. And we feel like, what are the reasons for that? That's not my science. But once again, is there anything in saliva that we would be able to help monitor, regulate, detect that might point to, you know, something that could benefit in the sure. mental health population where we're struggling so greatly? Is there, a, I guess, a collaboration within Wichita State to be able to accomplish that? And what really pulls the team together? Because when I met with you and some of your colleagues, right, I think what was fascinating beyond, you know, what you were able to accomplish was just how positive everybody was and, and working together to figure it out, right, and kind of pushing beyond some of the traditional bureaucracies you might find in... Yeah that landscape. No, it's so. so true. Again, it's this really interesting thing here in Kansas and in Wichita specifically, we're a community. We really are. There have been no specific discussions about saliva testing in general, but the mental health discussion and what we can okay. do to try to help remedy some of the huge, huge barriers that exist in that system. There have been many meetings going on that are collaborative within our community that I've been fortunate to be a part of and hope to continue to get to be a part of that, to look at what that solution could look like. And it's all kinds of people in our community. It's not just lab-minded people. Yeah. That's awesome. Look, Sarah, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. I think your grit in the midst of the pandemic and the ability to stand up the high throughput laboratory is really amazing. I appreciate the learnings that you share with us, you know, around nasal pharyngeal swab and where that came from. Just learning that now, which is, it's really incredible to understand that. I'm really excited about the expanding impact you're going to have with the new microbiology lab that you're starting. 
Uh, for our listeners, if you want to learn more about Sarah's work and keep tabs on her, we'll post a link to her website in the show's episode show notes. And you can find that on our site at www.spititoutpodcast.com. Thanks for listening to the Spit It Out Podcast. I'm your host, Avi Robbins. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on our journey to raise awareness about saliva diagnostics, the future of healthcare, and hear stories from some really awesome industry and academic leaders.